Well, today I want to just say how good it is to have the opportunity to be talking with you again about the subject of worry. I know that sounds strange to you, but I want to say how thrilled I am to be talking with you and also those of you who are with us in the fellowship hall today and via live stream. I hope and pray that you will also find our reflections today helpful to you. I want to invite you to think with me upon one of the most outrageous, maybe the most radical things that Jesus ever said. Jesus said that it was not only his desire, but it was actually possible that you and I might one day live a life with no worries, sort of like Crocodile Dundee. How many of you are familiar with that film, Crocodile Dundee, or maybe even just heard of it? Well, it features this um, very affable Australian fellow who actually popularized that uh, very familiar phrase, no worries, mate. You've heard that before. No worries. And Mick Dundee is a fellow that just moves through life with this amazingly open-hearted and open-handed lifestyle. He lives with this constant spirit of trust and freedom and courage and compassion that is so beautiful in a way that you just find yourself drawn into that life and wondering why can't more of us walk the way Mick walks through life. Well, the reality that Jesus is trying to proclaim to us is that you and I can have that kind of life. We can have this open-hearted, open-handed way of life. But to get there, we need to lean into four important movements of the Spirit, so to speak. And this is what we've been talking about over these last several weeks together. As we explored in the very first week, we need to shift our uh, worry or our focus off of what is concerning us and onto who God is. The number one thing we have to do is to stop looking at ourselves and looking at our circumstances and see him who is greater than anything else that works its influence on our life. We have to focus on the presence and the power and the providence of God. Then secondly, as I said last week, we need to learn to leave the future to God. Uh, It's not something we can control or compel no matter how hard we try. We have only today. We need to entrust God with the future. And and next week, we're going to explore the last movement in this uh, spiritual transformation and And talk about making some leaps of trust, which is absolutely critical to living a changed uh, lifestyle. Today, I want to think with you on the third crucial step. If you want no worries, then like Mick Dundee, we need to relax our possessive grip on the people and the things of this world. Now... There is an old saying that when it comes to understanding the meaning of a biblical text, context is king. Context is king. In other words, if you want to understand the true and full meaning of a passage of the scriptures, you need to understand its context. Not only its cultural context, but actually its context even within the larger span of the scriptural narrative. And you need to look at the passages that come in front and the passages that follow them, and it helps you to understand what Jesus or God's voice or the voice of the prophets is saying in any particular place. That is definitely true when it comes to understanding Christ's famous 
statements to us about the subject of worry. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about what you will eat or about your body or what you will wear. When I say to you, do not worry about your life, Jesus is saying to us something that has a context to it. And, and, and the, the clue to the context in this particular teaching of Jesus is this word, therefore. As Eric Campfield remarked in our first week, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you should wonder what it's there for. Because it's a pointer to the context. And, and what Jesus is teaching us about worry here is absolutely built on what he has said in the passage immediately preceding this famous text from Matthew 6. So here is what Jesus previously says. I tell you, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Say that with me. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, in the invisible places, in the realm of God, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now Christ knows that one of the major sources of worry in our life is our earthly treasures. By earthly, he means those things of uh, matter, those items uh, which we consider of very high value, those things that we prize and chase after and, and consider estimable. And by earthly, he means those things that God has provided for our enjoyment on this earth, but which are not ultimately ours. One of the great messages of the Bible is that the things of this earth are not actually ultimately ours. They are here for us to enjoy and to steward for a season, uh, to take very good care of. But the psalmist tries to remind us that the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In other words, it's not just material things but also people that constitute the treasures of this earth. That's true, isn't it? When we're leaving this earth, when we're close to the very end, we're getting close to that finish line, we know how precious are the people of this life alongside all of those things and those tastes and and succulences and experiences that we've been privileged to enjoy. But all of these things, both people and things, they are the Lord's, the Bible is saying. They belong to him. The problem is that as often as I hear that myself, I find myself continuing to try to put people and things in my storage closet, in a sense. And I think that much of our worry in life, certainly mine, maybe yours too, comes from treating people and things as our possessions. Gripping people and things as if they were mine. All mine. Now, in trying to make sense of this idea, I think back to the most worry-free period of my life. When was that in your life? Think about that for yourself. When was the time you had the least worry? 
For me, it was back uh, during the period between the time I was about 18 years old and about 25 years old. It was a time when I was in college and then over in Northern Ireland for a couple of years and then in graduate school in New Jersey. That was the most worry-free period of my life. When I'm fantasizing, I dream back to those particular days. For that entire period of time, I pretty much lived in one room. I had grown up in a nine-bedroom house on a 10-acre estate, and I thought life was good in those days. I was never more joyful and happy than when I lived in just one room. All of my personal belongings could be packed up into boxes that I could fit into the back of my Chevrolet Chevette which was basically a traveling tin can. This particular one had a, a rusted out hole in the floor, and when I drove through puddles, I would get splashed in the face. But I was blissful and relatively worry-free in that period of time. Life slowly changed for me over the years. I guess it probably has for you as well. I know that I moved into a, a series of progressively larger and larger houses. I, I went from being a renter to being an owner of things. I acquired a lot of treasures, a whole bunch of stuff, and that stuff I found, as wonderful as it was in many regards, had to be dusted, and it had to be cleaned, and fixed, and insured, and alarmed, and then rearranged, and then upgraded, or stored, or moved, or thrown away, this stuff that I had began to have me as the years went by. I like having these treasures, but there's a whole web of worry that comes with things. So often when we travel to the, uh, to the developing world, we're often surprised by how joyful people seem to be who have so few things. This is why they have so much less treasure to tend, to care for, to store, to arrange, to upgrade, and so on and so forth. These possessions begin to possess us. Can you relate to that in any way? Do you sense that experience in your own life in any way? That's true with people too. Uh, that is really true with people too. When I was uh, back in my 20s, I had marvelous roommates. Right? I had all these fabulous people with whom I was doing life, sharing life in, in good ways. Um, but, you know, I didn't hold too tightly to them. Uh, they were treasures for me, for sure. But I never held on too tightly to them. Why? Because I knew we'd all be moving on. Right? It was really clear to me. They, this was a, a wonderful privilege. We'd share for a season, but then we'd all have to move on. Then those... Transient roommates gave way to a permanent set of roommates, to a spouse and to, to kids and to employees and to church members. These were the people I was now doing life with, and I found myself worrying more about them. I found myself concerned about them and, 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 and turning and grinding over them and their choices and the way they were walking through life. Why? Because I felt like these people were actually mine now. They were mine. I mean, let's just talk about kids for a moment. Uh, because I think for many of us, uh, for many of us who are parents, kids are like our internal organs suddenly made external. You know what I mean? And vulnerable. 
I remember the day vividly. I was in downtown Hinsdale, and one of them nearly died. He would absolutely have been killed without a doubt had a very astute driver going down the street not seen the look of absolute horror on my face and instinctively slammed on the brakes a nanosecond before my five-year-old ran out between the cars right in front of her car. I have worried about my kids like you would, like you would believe. I have worried about keeping them from harm. I've worried about giving them the absolute best in life. I've worried about my children. I've wanted to protect them from the heartaches and the losses of life. I've, I've wanted to keep them ha- having to learn lessons the hard way, like I so often had to learn them. I've wanted them to have and to seize every single opportunity that was out there for them. I've wanted my children to become the people that I think they can be and should be and the world needs them to be. And so like a lot of parents, I've, I've just worried over my three sons, our three th- sons, and I've sometimes, if I'm ruthlessly honest with myself, moved from loving them to possessing them, to controlling them, to closeting them, as if like things, I, I, I own them, and I could upgrade them, and I could rearrange them to my liking as an accessory, as a wonderful projection of me, trophy kids in some sense. As, as they grow up, however, and as they go on in life, as a couple of them now have, I am beginning to discover what I think many of you already know for yourselves, that I, I, I was actually never an owner. I was just a renter. I was a steward of them for a while. They'll always be my kids. But, but even more than they're my kids, they're God's kids. They belong to him. In the documentary, Race to Nowhere, a a set of journalists explores the effect of what we now call helicopter parenting or tiger parenting. Uh, You've probably heard those phrases. And this documentary film features the story of students who have been enormously successful in one way or another, many of them. They have been, however, overscheduled. They have been over-tested. They have been overwhelmed by the pressure to achieve by parents who are worried that if they do not push and do not prod and do not control and manage and guide children in a very intense way, then these kids will never achieve the parent's sense of the potential. And the kids in this documentary often respond to this kind of pressure by working extremely hard and by achieving a lot of good stuff. A lot of good stuff. But they also pay a terrible price over time. And they display, many of them, physical and psychological and spiritual illnesses. They resort to habitual cheating. They they sometimes burn out altogether. They routinely struggle to really know who they are and what they're truly, really, personally called to do in this world. These kids know how to work the system incredibly well. They really know how to work it. But the world of worry in which they live does not make them more contented 
does not truly make them more balanced or even brighter kinds of people. They're not even sure anymore that they belong to themselves. They're simply slaves to the possessive opinions and the needs of the people around them. In thinking about all this, looking at it in my life and the lives of the people that I get to counsel, I've been um, convicted by uh, something that Pastor Tim Keller of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan uh, has said on the subject. And maybe this will challenge you too. He says, you know, sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and your meaning on anything, even a very good thing, and an earthly treasure. These are treasures. They're good things. But it's building your life and your meaning on anything more than on God. And in his bestseller, The Reason for God, Keller deepens his thinking on this further. He says, you know, if you center your life and your identity on your spouse, for example, or, or, or your partner, you will be emotionally dependent. If, if that's the center of your life, you're going to be emotionally dependent, probably jealous, maybe even controlling. If you center your life and your identity on your family and your children, you're going to run the risk of living your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. If you center your life and your identity on your work and your career, how many of us can plead guilty to that, especially guys in the room? You will become a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At least you run that risk. And at worst, you'll lose family and friends. And if your career goes poorly, you'll sink into depression. If you center your life and your identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry and jealousy over money and possessions. If you center your life on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will get addicted to something, and you'll become chained to all of the various escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and your identity on the approval of others, you will be hurt by criticism, or you'll fear confronting others and therefore find yourself a useless friend. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will tend to divide the world into good and bad, and you will demonize your opponents, and ironically, you'll be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you no longer have purpose. And if you center your life and identity on religion and morality, if you are living up to your moral standards, you will be proud and self-righteous, and if you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be devastating. The secret, therefore, is to center your life and your identity on what? On God. On God alone. Once we do that, once we really center ourselves on him, we begin to realize that we are called by him to care and to nurture our kids and our parents and our friends and other people, but we are never to control them as if they were our possession. 
if we're centered on him, we will realize that we are not around to press them into a mold of our own making or drive them to be what we think they should be. We can expose them to our faith. We should, especially when they're under the roof. We should bring our kids and our loved ones into the experience of the body of Christ. But their spiritual destiny is not in our control. It just isn't. And we are not to worry about this. Because these people belong to Almighty God. I love the way author Amy Simpson puts it. She sums it up as follows. Our sense of possession is a fallacy. Our desire to cling what we don't own is foolish and enslaves us to fear. It elevates our sense of self-importance and it, and it keeps us from living in boldness and freedom to actually respond to God's Holy Spirit instead of our preferences. Everything and everyone we care about belongs to God. I think back to my own parents. I remember the day that I announced, I think I'm going to go to seminary and not law school. And I, and I, and I saw the, the crisis on their face. Uh, not that they weren't you know, faithful people, but I mean, they had a very different picture of what my gifts were supposed to be about and to do. Um, you know, it, 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 it's amazing how certain we can become as parents about what our kids what, the, what path our kids are meant to go in life. And yet again, Amy Simpson reminds us, he has entrusted us with material goods and spiritual gifts and talents and abilities and relationships and opportunities and experiences, i.e. with earthly treasures, so we will take good care of them, encourage their potential, grow in faith and faithfulness, so that we will worship God with what he has given us and ultimately bring him greater glory on earth. And yes, in the process of experiencing these things, we will know deep joy. But we do not ever have ownership. And this is a good thing. For the people and things that mean so much to us are all better off in God's hands than they are in ours. And if we can live as if this is true, then we'll have a lot less to worry about. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, we get introduced to a terrible, tormented creature named Gollum. How many of you know who I'm talking about? You've seen this character. Long ago, Gollum had been a carefree, skipping through the world, a hobbit by the name of Smeagol. He had been somebody who loved to walk in the woods and to fish by the riverbanks with his friends. But one of his friends, a fellow by the name of, of Deagle, had found an enchanted gold ring. And Smeagol had become obsessed with possessing it. And longing to possess it, he killed his friend in order to have it. He came to call the ring, my precious. My precious. 
And and he went through his life trying to, to, to hold the ring, steal the ring, embrace the ring, crave the ring, manage the ring, and this became his life's idolatrous pursuit. And it transformed Smeagol into a wretched creature who was incapable of real life and real love. All he was really capable of anymore was worry. Just worry. So here's the question. Here's the takeaway for you. Who or what is your precious? Who or what is your precious? What are the things or the people whose ownership has become your worrisome possession? Can you imagine recentering your life and identity on your heavenly Father? So that you come to view these other goods as gifts that you are meant to hold more lightly than you've been holding them. Can you imagine living your life, in other words, a little more like Mick Dundee than like a golem? Some of you will quickly think as I say these things, but if I stop worrying, it will be like I've stopped caring. It will be a sign of apathy. But having no worries is not a form of apathy, quite the reverse. You see, when we stop wasting our energy on possessive worry, we become free. We become free to live and to love at a whole nother kind of level. As Amy Simpson says, we get to respond now to God with trust and with action as appropriate. We can focus on what God calls us to do. We can work less. We can spend more time with family. We can laugh more. We can get better sleep. We can play more, pray more, serve more, eat well, follow the direction of the Holy Spirit, and stop doing all of these things that are motivated by Worry. In other words, we can live life to the full, to the abundant level, as Jesus said. We can do this in the present. In the present. So here's my invitation to you. Ask for God's help to unclench your white-knuckled grip on whatever people and things you're holding hard to that are not really yours to control or to keep anyway. And here are a couple of specific ways of of sort of driving that idea into your life. First, resolve that you will center your life and your identity first and foremost on God, and every single time you find the focus slipping someplace else, you're just going to work hard to refocus on Him. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, everything in it, all who dwell in it, They're yours, Lord. Make that commitment to yourself. Secondly, take a good look at the list of the people and things that you feel such ownership of. Make sure you understand what the worry list looks like in your life. And then thirdly, write down what God has actually asked of you in relationship to those things. 
Not what you think your responsibility is, but what you believe God has actually said in his scriptures about your responsibility. For example, for your kids, you might write down, my responsibilities are to teach them about Jesus, to model a faithful life, and to pray for God's work in them. Instead of, my responsibility is to try to browbeat or manipulate them into following the path that I think they should walk or that I wish I had taken earlier myself when I was their age. Think about what your real responsibilities are. For your spouse, you might write, my responsibilities are to always be truthful and trustworthy versus criticize him or her till their personality changes. Uh, My responsibility is to follow Jesus myself. For your house or your workplace, you might write down, my my job is to welcome and encourage everyone versus my job is to obsess over every mess to prove to everyone that I care and that I'm in control. Do you see the difference? One comes from being centered on God. One comes from being centered on possessing, controlling and owning. So finally, just resolve to be a loving grateful steward of yourself and the people and things that God has put into your hands for a season. No possessiveness. No worries. Please pray with me. Lord, pour into us your Holy Spirit. Come into our mind and our heart. Occupy our soul. Flow through every part of our physical strength until our hands begin to open up and our hearts begin to open up and we find ourselves truly loving truly trusting, as you have called us to do. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.